Let's open our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter number 11. Luke chapter number 11. And I was telling Brother Tim tonight, I, if the Lord will help me, I'm going to start a short little series this evening. And I don't know why I'm doing it. Somebody say amen to that because we're starting revival next week. But, uh, but I believe it would be the heart and mind of the Lord this evening uh, to give you uh, uh, the beginning of a little bit of truth. Uh, concerning what the devil wants to do in your life. How many of you know that God has a will for your life? Amen? How many of you know that it's equally true that the devil has a will for your life? And we must choose who we want to have the victory and who we want to be in control in our life. And uh, I believe that we need to uh, be wise to his devices. I think we need to be uh, circumspect in the way that we live. And I, I think that the first step to defeating an enemy is knowing what the tactics of that enemy are. Uh, any, any great quarterback spends time in the tape room, amen, uh, finding out how it is that the opponent, that the foe, uh, is going to approach him. That's true in military conquest as well. You study what the enemy is going to do. And uh, the Word of God is, is not silent concerning uh, the devil's tactics and how he approaches us and what he seeks to do in our lives. Luke chapter number 11, we're going to begin reading at verse number 14. And we're going to read down to verse number 26. Luke chapter number 11, verse number 14. The Word of God says that he was casting out a devil. The Lord Jesus was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges." But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this Another opportunity. Bless your people tonight through the preaching of thy word. May you stir our hearts. May you give us wisdom. And Lord, may you uh, fortify us. May you protect us uh, from the onslaught of Satan in our lives. May we uh, be suited up in the armor of God, ready and equipped to withstand in the evil day that we are living. And we'll be sure to thank you uh, for the help that we receive tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In this little passage that we've read tonight, the Lord Jesus casts out a devil, and the Pharisees, uh, as they so often did, sought to challenge that action and that activity, and they approach Jesus and accuse him of casting out devils through Beelzebub. 
Now, Beelzebub was another name for Satan. It was very distinct. It meant Lord of Flies. And it was sort of as uh, as base and as profane of a name as could be given uh, to the devil. And when they ascribed to the Lord Jesus his casting out devils through Beelzebub, it says in verse 16, others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. So essentially what they're saying is we've, we've accused you of by satanic power performing these great works. Now prove unto us that you are doing it by divine power, supernatural power, as opposed to satanic power. And in answer to this, the Lord Jesus gives three illustrations or three truths concerning satanic influence in our lives. Now let me make a statement to you tonight that I think we all need to have at the forefront of our minds. I don't believe it's possible for a believer, a born-again child of God, to be indwelt or possessed by a devil. However, I do believe it is possible for a born-again believer to be influenced by the devil and to be oppressed by the devil. In other words, he can't take up residence in your life necessarily, but that does not mean he cannot lead you astray. I'm reminded of the statement uh, that Peter made to Ananias in Acts chapter number 5. Uh, the Bible tells us that a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the problem was not that he kept back part of it, but he lied about it. He told him he was giving everything to the church, and he, and he wasn't. And Peter even goes out of his way to say, hey, listen, while it was yours, it was yours. You could have kept all of it if you wanted to, but instead you lied to the Lord and you lied to us and and you pretended as though you did something that you didn't. Listen how Peter says it, though. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to give back part of the price of the land? Now, that little statement tells me a wealth of knowledge about the way that Satan works and, and what the scope and realm of his influence is. It tells me, number one, that Ananias was a saved man. So why do you believe that, preacher? Because he lied to the Holy Ghost. And it was not about the matter of salvation. I, you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think as a general rule, the Holy Ghost don't deal with lost people except about salvation. He deals with them. Let me say that again. I, some of you all looking at me funny. I don't believe the Holy Ghost deals with lost people except about salvation. I believe that, that that's the primary, preeminent thing in their life. Now, I'm not saying there cannot be an exception to that, but I think as a general rule, if the Holy Ghost has anything to say to a lost person, uh, it's generally about the matter of salvation. But that's not what this matter was about. Uh, the Holy Ghost was dealing with Ananias about that land and about him lying to Peter and lying to the church about it. So uh, I believe that he was indwelt by the Holy Ghost. Uh, I believe that he was a born-again man in this New, Te- New Testament dispensation of grace. But it also tells me that even a saved person can be influenced by Satan because Satan filled his heart with a wicked desire and a wicked device. So even in your life and mine, it's possible for, for Satan to gain victory. And it's possible for him to have the control and the influence in our lives. And I think it's with this in mind that Paul makes this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now, there's some background there as to what Paul's saying. He's basically saying, if you forgive somebody, I forgive and he's saying, I, I don't want to allow unforgiveness to uh, persist in the body of Christ. And this is why, he says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Evidently, Satan can get the upper hand in a church. 
Satan can get the upper hand in a, in a marriage. Satan can get the upper hand in a home. Satan can get the upper hand in a believer's life. And then he says this, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That phrase devices, it means any sort of tool or strategy for the purpose of gaining an advantage. In other words, Satan has tactics. He has strategies that he employs in our lives. And it would behoove you and me to figure out what those are and to protect against them. Well, I think it's three of those said strategies that the Lord Jesus addresses in this passage in Luke chapter number 11. I'll go ahead and give them to you, although I'm only going to preach on one of them tonight. The first, and and we'll preach on this, is he talks about the tactic of unification. We would use maybe this word, the word solidarity. It says a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. In other words, if we're going to beat the devil, we're going to have to beat him because he ain't going to beat himself. Amen? He is going to present a united front and he has a plan that involves a united front of solidarity in this world. Number two, he uh, tells the illustration of a strong man. And we might call it the tactic or the strategy of fortification. The devil will try to set up roadblocks and barriers and build walls in your life to prevent God from being able to get through and being able to reach you. This is why very often when someone starts down a wrong path, the devil will put a bad friend right there along beside him to run interference against what God's doing. Oftentimes, it's one of the things that addictions does in a person's life. It's not that God can't free them of it, but very often they are so focused and fixated on that addiction that it becomes a stronghold that except they really get serious with God, it's not going to be broken through. What's the devil doing? Man, he's building walls around your life. And he's fortifying it through strength. And then finally, he tells the parable of a uh, devil that is cast out of a man and walks about and he finds no other place to go and he comes back to that original person and he finds that man's life swept and garnished. He finds that there's nothing there. It's just empty. The Bible says he takes seven other devils worse than himself and the end of that man is worse than the beginning. I call this the tactic of multiplication. Or we might use this term, saturation. You know what the devil will try to do? He'll try to fill up your whole life and make you think that there's no way out. So with that in mind, I want to preach for a few moments tonight on this tactic of unification, of a unified front. Let's notice the passage with us again tonight. Verse 17, He knowing their hearts said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. I want to say a word tonight about the satanic kingdom that the Lord Jesus reveals is present, is existent, is strong, is forceful in the world around us. He likens Satan's realm of influence to a kingdom and says that this kingdom gains its strength in the solidarity that it promotes and in the uniformity of thought that it demands. It presents a united front to the believer. Now, I think this has been, I know it has been my experience and probably yours too, when you look at the world. The world has messaging down to a science. 
We're experiencing this on overdrive right now. Uh, there seems to be a consolidated effort, man. Big tech and media and everything's just lining up to present a united front and a singular message to convey to us certain things about what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what should be promoted, what should not be promoted in this world around us. Insomuch that people will think they're crazy for believing basic things that any human being would believe. Can I give you an example? Hey, listen, all over the world today, there's people that would tell you that a person can't know whether they're a man or a woman. And every, every news station you turn on will hold that same, that same philosophy. Every, if you turn on a movie or TV show, they'll all hold that same philosophy. If you walk into any university, they'll tell you the precise same thing. They're presenting a, a message of solidarity to such a degree that something that we have known to be basic established science for all of human history, something that even a little child understands, even a child, a little boy knows he's not a little girl, a little girl knows they're not a little boy, but it'll cause people to second guess, to doubt even what their own eyes are telling them because of the power and force of solidarity. You get enough people in, the, in a room saying the same thing, it's liable to overcome the will and resolve of just about any person. And Satan understands this. And in that pursuit, he seeks to present this united front. The Lord Jesus likens it to a kingdom. Well, that's a fit illustration. Because I, when I look at the world system today, it looks very much like a kingdom. A kingdom's strength is found in its solidarity. A kingdom is only as strong as the people support the king and follow the statutes and maintain the culture and the identity. And the kingdom of Satan is no different. For instance, let me say that the satanic kingdom has a king. And that king is Satan himself. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 verse 3 says this, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that Satan, not only is he the prince of the power of the air, as is said in the book of Ephesians, but he is the God of this world. He is the administrator of this world's affairs. By the way, this satanic kingdom is going to reach full realization and full culmination in the person and empire of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. But you mark her down. Hey, listen, you've heard that Antichrist will come, but there are many Antichrists even right now. There's a spirit of Antichrist that operates and works in this world. And make no mistake about it, Satan himself is administrating the culture and movement that pushes men away from Christ and towards devotion to Him. He is the God of this world. That's why it's one, one of the things that bugs me so bad is when atheists blame the mess that this world is on God. They'll say, you know, well, how could there really be a God if there's so much suffering and heartache in this world? Hey, when God created it, there wasn't. It wasn't until Satan tempted man in the garden and man ate of the fruit and sin took entrance into humanity that human suffering began. Don't blame that on God. It's in spite of God that men suffer, not because of God. Satan himself that propagates and, and perpetuates uh, this world culture. Not only is it a kingdom with a king, but it's a kingdom with confederates. Now, I want to be very... And maybe I could use the word conspirators, and I think it would be appropriate. A conspiracy is any more than what is it? Any more than three people or any more than four people gathered together with a uh, distinct and, and consolidated will and plan. And we have that in this world. 
I'm not saying that everyone that walks around in this earth, I'm not saying every politician, although maybe most of them, but I'm not saying every politician, I'm not saying every Hollywood actor, I'm not saying every athlete, but I'm saying there is a concerted effort in this world today to undermine and overthrow the biblical foundation of our society. Uh, Satan has his emissaries. In 1 John chapter number 2, I quoted this a moment ago, but John writes and says, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us. So that, that means it's not all just rank atheists. Some of them used to be believers. Some of them used to be preachers. Some of them used to be teachers. Some of them used to be evangelists. Some of them used to be people that you or I might look up to. They went out from us, though. John says... Uh, the reason they went out from us is because they were not of us. He said, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In other words, Satan has his emissaries in this world. There are people, and some of them may be what uh, the Marxists call useful idiots, amen, and the radicals. Some of them may be useful idiots. Some of them may be people that are completely unaware that they're being used in such a way. I look very often, and I, I try not to pay too much attention to it because I've just got more important things in life, but when you look at so many of these young people, be they musicians, be they athletes, be they movie stars, whoever they might be, first thing they do, they, first they make $2 million and then start saying stupid stuff. I would think it would take more than $2 million to make me think I'm an expert at anything, especially if I got it for throwing a ball around a a, a playground, especially if I got it for plunking on a guitar or something. I would think I would have more sense than to think I'm an expert. Why is it they are so quick to get up and they all parrot the same lines? They all talk the same game. They all talk about the same radical, Marxist, leftist, wild, anti-God, anti-America garbage. Every single one of them gets up and says the same thing. That's not by accident. The devil himself, and I'm not saying he's indwelling them, I'm not even saying he's energizing them, but I do believe he's influencing them. And I do believe he is using them to tip the scale and to turn the culture of this world. Uh, Paul described it this way, the satanic emissaries and, and influences that we battle against. He said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. High places. What does he mean? Powerful places. He says there are world leaders that are energized and imbued with spiritual wickedness. They're being used by the devil to undermine this world. So it's a, it's a kingdom with confederates. Not only that, it's a kingdom with customs. A kingdom is not a kingdom if it doesn't have customs and statutes. And that's one of the basic components throughout human history of a people group is there were certain things that were acceptable and certain things that were not. You know that's true of the satanic kingdom that influences this world as well. You'll find out real quick, <coughs> you, you put one toe out of line to the marching orders and to the uniform message of this world, you'll find out how quickly certain things... For society to be so all fire tolerant of every wickedness around, one thing that society will not tolerate is dissenting opinion. You step outside of that line, you have an opinion that runs contrary, and you'll find out real quick that this world is not as tolerant as it claims to be. And that should be no surprise. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. What is a course? A course is a mapped out path. 
And if you're in a race and you step outside of that course, you get penalized. The world's the same way. There are certain things that are acceptable to say and acceptable to believe and acceptable to do. He says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, this world has certain things that it considers uh, the, the abominable sins. And uh, part of the purpose and part of the design behind that uniform messaging is to use the peer pressure of a uh, uniform message to try to bully people and beat people into being unwilling to voice unpopular opinion. There are certain things in society we're just not even allowed to talk about. And there are certain things if a person runs for office or if a person is in any, any position of influence and of prominence, if they were to get up and say, hey, I believe there's one way to heaven, and I believe it's through Jesus Christ and through no one else, that would be the end of their career. Now, you say, well, preacher, that's fine and everything, but who cares about all these politicians? They're all wicked and slimy anyway. But I'm saying in your daily life and in my daily life, we have to make choices day in and day out whether we're going to bow before that world system, whether we're going to bow before the golden image, whether we're going to dance to the psaltery and the harp and the sackbut the way that they did in Daniel chapter number 3, whether we're going to bend and bow and break before this world's pressure. There are certain customs. And then I would say this, it's a kingdom with a culture, with a culture. Again, every people group in society has been a people group because they had a distinct culture. That's part of the problem with the concept of, of multiculturalism that is so pervasive in globalism today is it dismisses a very basic foundational truth, which is that what has always held people together as peoples has been their shared common culture. And there's nothing wrong with that, amen? There was a time, there's nothing wrong with that, amen? Uh, let me say that again, there's nothing wrong with that, amen? Uh, the world wants to tell you that that's wrong. That's part of that bully process. There was a time we celebrated the fact that people was different and had different cultures and that was okay and there was nothing wrong with that. Now today, if you claim that there, uh, that anybody has any different culture than anybody else, you're considered a racist and a bigot and all kinds of nonsense. I'm telling you, that's part of that uniform message that the world is trying to beat you and me with. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize that. Every kingdom has a culture. Well, this world has a culture. Uh, the Bible says in John chapter number 3, Christ talking to Nicodemus said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. But what did men do? Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That's the culture of this world. This world's culture is a culture of darkness. It is a culture of concealment. It is a culture of lies and deception. That is what sells in this world. That is what dominates in this world. That is this world's culture. Uh, John goes and details even further in 1 John chapter number 2, verse 14. He says this, I have written unto you fathers, and he's using that term father in a spiritual sense, talking about older uh, believers. He said, I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you. Listen to this, and you have overcome the wicked one. He's saying to these young believers, he's saying, you've overcome the wicked one. You've, you've pushed off the culture. You've fought back that usurper. You have asserted yourself as an independent person. You've made your choice to go with God instead of going with this world. And he says, that's why I write unto you. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What are the things that are in the world? He's not talking about material possessions distinctly. He's talking about this world's culture. 
what makes this world this world. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he says this, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In other words, there is a culture to this world. And a culture is basically distinguished by what a people group appreciates. That's what makes up its culture. What it appreciates and what it has an aversion to. The things it likes, the things that it dislikes. The things that it values and the things that it does not value. There are certain things in in East Tennessee culture that are, are just value. There are a lot of places in the world that wouldn't care a lick whether you can make cornbread. But here, I mean, it's part of it. You're just going to have to learn it. There's a lot of places in the world, if you ask for sweet tea, they give you unsweet tea and a bowl of sugar. But here we value that. Uh, there are other things just don't interest us, amen? And, and, and they're just, it's, it's not appealing uh, to us in our culture. Culture is based on what you value. What does this world value? This world values the lust of the flesh. If it feels good, do it. The lust of the eyes. Hey, if it looks good, do it. If it can make you look better, pursue it. And the pride of life. How can I get ahead? How can I elevate myself? How can I make more of myself in this world? That is this kingdom's culture. So he talks about this satanic kingdom. And, and if I, the, the last few minutes that I preached on it, if you don't get anything else, get this. The world is presenting a unified front that this is what's acceptable, that this is what is appropriate, that this is what is uh, appealing, that if you don't live the way the world lives, it's because you're weird. If you don't live the way the world lives, it's because you're messed up. Hey, listen, if, if what the world lives and how the world lives, if that's normal, I don't want to be normal. I don't want that. If, if, if getting on fire for God and having a life that counts, if that's being messed up, man, I want to be messed up. I'm just telling you, this world and Satan presents a unified front. There is a satanic kingdom. But then I want you to notice in our text, the supreme conqueror. Not just one kingdom in our text. There's two kingdoms. One is the satanic kingdom. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? But now go down to verse number 20. He says, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. In other words, he's saying this. Yes, there is a satanic kingdom. There is a culture. There is a, an atmosphere of this world that is promoted, that is pushed and propagated and is elevated and is, and is demanded of society. But it is possible to break free of that kingdom. It is possible to leave that kingdom and be a part of another kingdom. God has the capacity to free a man of this world's influences. How does he do that? Well, it's interesting. Here in this passage, he says, if I with the finger of God. Man, that's interesting language. You'll find the finger of God uh, present and prominent all throughout Scripture, but there's a few places that stuck out in my mind. First time the phrase finger of God is used, it's in Exodus chapter number 8. I don't know if you remember it, but let me read it to you. Verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. You remember this is when the plagues uh, in Egypt are taking place. And so the Bible says they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with the rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. 
So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord hath said. wonder what they meant when they said this is the finger of God. I think they were saying this. We don't have the power to take something dead and make it alive. That's beyond our ability. We can, we can change material things. We can uh, change water into blood. We can beckon forth animals to approach unto us and to fall. But one thing we cannot do is take something dead and make it alive. Only God can give life. So how does God free a person from the kingdom of darkness and of this world? I'd say, number one, the quickening of God does that. The first step is a person's born again. They're born again. That old man is, is, is crucified. And they're born again into the kingdom of God. That's how a person enters the kingdom of God. The only way you can get into the kingdom of God is to be born again. Uh, hey, listen, except you be born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. Uh, Christ made that abundantly clear in John chapter number 3. Uh, you must be born again. A person will always be under the influence, always under the authority and jurisdiction of this world. They will live their life to please the world and nobody else until they get born again and changed by the grace of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of believers put themselves back under that yoke. But I'm saying you're never going to get out from that yoke in the first place until you get born again. Well, the Lord Jesus later on, and I won't preach it. I'll wait here in a couple weeks and preach it. But uh, later on, the Lord Jesus tells the story about the man that the devil is cast out of him. And whenever that fellow comes, that devil comes back, he finds the house. In other words, the person's life is swept and empty. Uh, in other words, there was reformation that took place. All of the wicked, all of the evil was cleaned out, but there was nothing divine that took up residence in that house. It laid empty, it laid barren, it laid desolate, and so that devil came back and just took up residence. Not only that, brought seven of his friends with him. This is the reason that self-reformation is doomed to fail. It can take some things out of a man's life, but it can't put the right things in a man's life. And this is why you'll never break free of, of that kingdom and that authority without the presence of God and without the life of God in your, in your heart. That's the reason that Christ said in John chapter number 10, we're talking about that satanic influence, right? He said the thief. Now, who's the thief? That's the devil. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So that's the choice. You can have the death that this world gives or the life that God gives to you. So the quickening of God. There's another time the finger of God is mentioned. And this is probably what immediately came to your mind when you thought of the finger of God. It's in Exodus chapter 31. God has given the law to Moses. And it says in verse 18 that He gave unto Moses when He had made an end of communing with Him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. In other words, it's the finger of God, not only that gave the quickening of God, but that gave the commandments of God. Not only does the life that God gives us have the ability to translate us, to put us in that new kingdom, but then even we as believers, when we seek and endeavor to have our life under the jurisdiction of God, one of the great chief tools to do that is the Word of God. In other words, the truth of God from the Word of God has the ability to break the chains and yoke and influence of Satan in our lives. That should be no surprise. You know why? Because the world tells us constant lies, and this book is nothing but truth. How do you battle lies? You battle lies with the truth. You don't battle them with other lies. You battle them with the truth. 
Hey, listen, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? You get in the book and let the book get in you. You'll find that the allurements of this world will grow weaker. You'll find that the the glistening and glamour of this world will grow dull. The word of God has the ability to adjust our perspective, to get our eyes fixed on what is true. And despite all of the lies that the devil tells, despite him trying to blind our eyes and our mind from, from the light of the truth of the word of God, the word of God has the ability to pierce through the lies of this world and reveal truth unto us. That's why we need to be spending so much time in this book. It's because, listen, this world is constantly bombarding us with lies. We need to be constantly ingesting truth to combat those things. Uh, it, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's how battle is done is with this book. And the Lord Jesus gave us an example of this in Luke chapter 4 when Satan came unto him tempting him. And on three occasions he offered him things. And every single time, listen to it, verse 4, Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Verse 8, Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Verse 12, Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, and he's quoting the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In other words, when the Lord Jesus could have spoke Satan out of existence, He instead chose to meet Him on the same battlefield you and I meet Him on. And how did He thwart uh, the temptation of the devil? How did He thwart the influence, the satanic influence that was bombarding Him? He did so through the Word of God. You want to be different? Get in the book. You want to live a life that's holy, that's righteous? Get in the book. Stay in the book. Believe the book. Obey the book. It has the ability to break the yoke and chains of that kingdom. Not only that, uh, but I find the finger of God in John chapter number 8. I won't take the time to read through it, but you remember they bring a woman taken in adultery to the Lord Jesus, and they ask Jesus uh, what He should do uh, with her. They, they said, you know, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Uh, this they said, tempting Him that they might have to accuse Him. But Jesus stooped down and with His finger wrote on the ground as though He heard Him not. There's a lot of mystery concerning what the Lord wrote there. We don't really know. My preacher used to believe it was the, that he wrote the law in the, in, at the first time he knelt down, that he wrote something pertaining to forgiveness or grace the second time. I really don't know. You don't know either. I guess we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out. But it's apparent that they wanted the Lord Jesus to treat this woman in condemnation. That's what they desired. They wanted him to blast her. And instead, he stands up and he looks at him and says, let him first uh, cast among you that is without, or he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it being convicted. By the way, it's the only time you'll find the word convicted in the Bible. They being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, being beginning at the eldest even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? They wanted condemnation. But he didn't, he didn't react in condemnation. She said, no man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What did he reply? And he replied in compassion. You know what I found? I found that the compassion of God has the ability 
to break this world's allurement and influence upon us. Uh, we read earlier in Ephesians chapter number 2, where, where Paul's talking about that in time past you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's talking about who we were before we got saved. He's talking about who we were when we were a part of that old kingdom. He's saying, man, we, we just lived like everybody else lived. We did what the world told us. We, we lived like the world told us. We believed what the world told us. Uh, we were living by, uh, by our uh, carnal and unregenerate nature. That's who we were. But listen to what he says in verse 4. But God. We used to be in that kingdom. We used to be under that jurisdiction, that influence, that power. But God, who is rich in mercy, For His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying the compassion of God broke the chains of the world's influence. I was headed that way. I was dying in my sins. Then somebody told me God loved me. And all of a sudden, that clarion call pierced through that darkness and wretched my heart and my ears. So I find that the compassion of God... In Matthew chapter number 12, we have a parallel account of the Lord Jesus' statements here. And there's an interesting distinction that's made. Now, I don't believe it's a contradiction. I believe the Lord said both of these things. But in Matthew's account, Matthew recorded something that the Lord said that Luke did not. In Matthew 12:28. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus looked at them and said, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Now again, I don't see any contradiction there. If you want to know my opinion, I think he probably said something to the effect of by the Spirit and finger of God. Or by the Spirit of God and by the finger of God. I don't think he said one or the other. I think he said both. I think Luke noticed, picked up on one in, in uh, his uh, rehearsing of the story and what he had been told. And I think Matthew picked up on the other one. But it's interesting that those two ideals are placed beside each other. The finger of God and the Spirit of God. In other words, what God does by the finger of God, He does also simultaneously by the Spirit of God. It's no surprise the Spirit of God is the power of God, effectual in this world. And it shouldn't be any surprise that when the finger of God gives life, that's the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God is the one that does give us life, that does quicken us, that breathes the life of God into our life and takes up residence in us. shouldn't be a surprise that when God wrote down the Old Testament law with the finger of God, that the Spirit of God was involved, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Spirit of God moved upon holy men of old, and they wrote as as God spake unto them. And uh, it's inspired by the Spirit of God. That shouldn't be any surprise. shouldn't be any surprise that the compassion of God is administered by the Holy Ghost. Hey, listen, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. I'm saying there's no contradiction there, but there is an interesting illumination. That it's not only the quickening of God, not only the commandments of God, uh, it's not only the compassion of God that can free us from that kingdom, but it's the comforter of God that can free us from that kingdom. In other words, the Spirit of God, as He works in your life and in my life, has the ability to break the chains of this world's influence and, and to satisfy and content us with living separate 
uh, lives and individuals living in a righteous, consecrated way. He has the ability. The world may tell us we have to live one way, but guess what? As a child of God, we have God in our hearts. We're the temple of the Holy Ghost, and the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts and remind us that's our old life, that's our old way of living. We don't have to live that way. We don't need to live that way. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus, and we ought to be living in a different manner. Now, I'm not going to get into all of it. Time would fail me, but it's interesting. In 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, Paul's talking about the uh, coming tribulation and the Antichrist and the revealing of the Antichrist. And he does make this statement. I, I think it's interesting. He says, Now you know what withholdeth that he, that the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. I told you it's a kingdom. It's a conspiracy. It's a movement. It's a culture. It's a mystery of iniquity doth already work. Then he says this, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. He goes on to talk about the destruction of the Antichrist. Commentators have fussed a little bit about this, but I think most people are in agreement that what it's referencing when it says he who now letteth or he who withholdeth, he who restrains, it's talking about the Spirit of God in the person and influence of the New Testament church. In other words, he's saying the thing that prevents the mystery of iniquity, the, the system of the Antichrist, the empire and influence of satanic darkness from overcoming and enveloping and swallowing up this world, the thing that holds it at bay is the presence of the Spirit of God in this world. Should it be any surprise then that the thing that personally in your life and in my life has the ability to break the chains of darkness, should it be any surprise that the Spirit of God is that influence? If we'll obey Him, if we'll follow Him, if we'll let Him lead us, then He can keep us from that darkness. So I find in this passage the satanic kingdom. I find the supreme conqueror. God can deliver you from that. Then I notice some salient questions. I'm just going to read through them. I'm not really even going to preach them. But can I remind you, this all centers around questions that are being asked. They look at Jesus and say, hey, you're Bobby Elzebub casting out these devils. Isn't that right? And one of them looks at him and says, show us a sign. We want to see a sign. Prove to us you're who you say you are. And the Lord Jesus begins to ask them questions about, uh, about satanic influence and about just the idea of solidarity. And it comes down to this. Look what he says in verse number 19. He says, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Maybe this would have been a transcendental truth in another life and in another series. But suffice it to say that he turns this conversation around. And he says, you're asking me to prove that I'm not part of the devil's kingdom. He says, I want to ask you which kingdom you're a part of. He says, there's a satanic kingdom. And they acknowledge that. They acknowledge that because they saw that he was casting out devils. And they not only that, they were accusing him of being a part of that satanic kingdom. He says, all right, you accept that there's a satanic kingdom. He said, not only that, you accept that there's a kingdom of God. It's just a question of whether I'm a representative of it. I'm an emissary of it. He says, I prove to you that it doesn't make sense that if I was a part of Satan's kingdom that I'd cast out Satan. It doesn't make sense that if I was a part of his system that I would do something to destroy his system. So it only stands to reason if I am assaulting Satan, if I am casting out devils, I must be a part of the kingdom of God. He said, now the question is, which kingdom are you a part of? 
Which kingdom are you a part of? Every person in this world is born into the kingdom of darkness. It's our natural condition. It's our natural state. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I think by the grace of God, I'm thankful that I think uh, little kids that are not to an age of understanding the idea of the gospel and of sin and of their personal accountability. I don't think it has anything to do with a calendar age or a chronological age. I think it's probably different for every kid. I believe a person dies and goes to hell because they've rejected Christ. I believe little bitty babies don't have the ability, the capacity to reject Christ. But I'm saying our default position as, as individuals in this world, we're born into that kingdom of darkness. If we're going to be a part of, of the kingdom of God, something's got to change. Which kingdom are you a part of? Paul said in Colossians chapter number 1, verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. In another place, that word is used, and it's used in the way it says jurisdiction. Other places it's used for the idea of authority. In other words, he's saying the kingdom, the power, the jurisdiction, the authority. He delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. So the first question you have to answer in your life is which kingdom am I a part of? If you've never been born again, you're not a part of the kingdom of God. If you've never been born again, you're not a part of the kingdom of God. If there's never been a time in your life when you've acknowledged yourself a sinner, repented of that sin and that dependence on self, and asked Christ to forgive you and save you, believing that He's able to do so, trusting Him to do it, if you've never done that, then you're not born again. If you're not born again, you're not a part of the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. But now listen, if you have been born again, I've been born again. I trust most, if not everybody in this room, has been born again. If you've been born again then we know what part, what kingdom you're a part of. You're a part then of the kingdom of God. Now, sad truth, not everybody that's part of the kingdom of God always lives that way. I know a lot of people that are saved that don't live the way that they ought to, and you no doubt know a lot of people that live that way. But that don't change which kingdom you're a part of. If you've been born again, you're a part of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the second question. Not just who, what, which is your kingdom, but here's the second question. Who then is your king? Who is your king? If you're a part of the kingdom of God, you ought to know who your kingdom is, who your king is. Your king ought to be the God of glory. So here's my question then. If you're part of the kingdom of God and God ought to be your king, what are you doing living and following marching orders from the king of the other kingdom? Why should we as believers be living and following the marching orders of this world system? Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, I don't do what the devil tells me. The devil don't tell me to do anything. No, the devil tells the uh, spiritual wickedness in high places uh, what to do. And the spiritual wickedness in high places sets the tone and tenor uh, for this world through the media and through Hollywood and through culture. And then it funnels its way all the way down to the believer. And we say, if I don't live the way that this world tells me to live, then I'm going to be ostracized. We might as well be hearing it from Satan's lips himself. We're part of the kingdom of God. Why are we listening to their king instead of our king? Paul said, hey, listen, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul said in Philippians 2, there's coming a day that uh, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Paul says, I'm not waiting for that day to bow my knee. I'm going to bow my knee today. He's my kingdom. It's my kingdom. He's my king. He's my God. And then here's the final question. Not just which is your kingdom. 
And not just who is your king, but you know that what that last you know what that last Im- implication is? What's your culture? What's your culture? What are your customs? How are you living your life? Uh, Christ said in John 17, praying to his Father, and he said, I've given them, talking about the disciples, he says, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Is our culture the same culture as the world? Are we living in, in a way that we fit right in with the world around us? Now listen, I'm not advocating weirdness for the sake of weirdness. For most of y'all, I don't have to have to advocate weirdness. Amen? It just comes natural to you. But I'm saying I'm not advocating being odd for the sake of being odd. But I do think we are to be a peculiar people. Zealous of good works, peculiar meaning different meaning distinct, meaning not common, not profane, not like everything else. As believers, we ought to be living in a different way. We ought to be living in a different way. What's your culture? Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He said, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. In another place, Paul said, our conversation is in heaven. Meaning our culture, our way of living, our way of acting, our way of conducting ourselves. Where are we getting our marching orders from? Well, which is your kingdom? If you're saved by the grace of God, your kingdom is the kingdom of God. So who's your king? Well, if you're a Christian, your king is the God of glory. So what are you doing listening to the king, the God of this world? And then by extension, what's the culture that you're embracing? It's about time Christians grow comfortable with the idea of being different than this world. For far too long, we felt like we have to walk in lockstep with what this world says. And guess what? That's not by accident. Peer pressure has great power. Walk through a middle school sometime. Walk through a high school sometime. You'll find people that proclaim that nobody's going to tell them what to do and they're wearing the exact same pair of shoes that everybody else is wearing. Hey, influence is guiding them more than authority is guiding them. The devil presents a unified front. We as believers, by the grace of God, by the quickening, by the commandments, by the compassion, by the comforter of God, by the uh, leadership of the Holy Spirit, we can walk contrary to the way this world is. And guess what we then can do? When we do that, we can make a difference in the world around us. We can be salt, we can be light, we can make an impact in this world. We'll never make an impact living the way this world does. But if we'll live in a way different from the world around us, then there's potency and power and ability to reach this world around us. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. If God's touched your heart, you, you can go ahead and come. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation. pray that your people would do business with you, gain help from you. And I pray that we'd bow our knee before you this evening, Lord, not just externally, but in our heart of hearts, that we'd own and claim you as our king, and that we'd be willing to live according to the customs and and culture of your kingdom, your life, your way of living. And we'll be sure to thank you for the work that's done. We ask it in Christ's name.